This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 161, TV Supporting Characters. McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You can connect with us on social media at C McBrien for me or at Amaron underscore DM for Derek and popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, well first of all, how are you? And second, what's new in pop culture in your world, my friend? Hi, Chris. First of all, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm always doing good. All right. All right. Uh, I want to wish a uh, happy Thanksgiving to all our uh, friends south of the border in the USA. Indeed. Uh, American Thanksgiving today, the day we're recording this. Uh, Our Canadian Thanksgiving was last month, but uh, we can certainly take advantage of the uh, Black Friday shopping deals that have been happening this weekend and will continue to happen. So happy Thanksgiving, neighbors to the south. And uh, as far as pop culture, I've actually managed to scrape together uh, a few pop culture tidbits this week. It wouldn't be Pop Goes Your World if Derek didn't have some documentary reviews for oh, it. Of course. What have you been watching documentary-wise? Right. So I Please. saw two documentaries this week. Nice. One was Just Okay and one was Outstanding. All right. The first one is called Unbanned AJ1. It's about the um, it's about Air Jordan sneakers. Oh. And the second one is called Belushi. And it's about the life of John Belushi. That's the one I want to see. Wasn't it on Showtime or something? Oh, one of, I think I picked it up on HBO. Oh, yeah. I'm, that's so, the one I really want to watch. I can't wait to hear about it. So as I said, one of these documentaries was, was fantastic and the other was just okay. The Belushi one was just okay. Oh, really? Wow. Wah, wah. Yeah. So I'll start with that one. So yeah. Well, one, why wasn't it good? I, well, it's not that it wasn't good. It's just that I didn't think it was great. Uh, the... It was an interesting exercise. The The documentary maker decided that it was going to be an oral history. So unlike most documentaries where you have someone narrate what's happening and you you intercut um, news footage and, and interviews. And, and still and photographs like, and stuff. Yeah. Things like that. Yep, yeah. Yep. Uh, this one, the there is no interviewer uh, or there is no narrator. It is literally just the voices of the people that knew Belushi. So you have people like Dan Aykroyd and Lauren mm-hmm. Michaels and Carrie Fisher, um, Jim Belushi, his brother. Uh, sure. You know, you have various directors that he's worked with, writers, uh, people from uh, his college days, uh, you know, all sorts of people. Mm-hmm. His, his wife, widow, yeah, for sure. Judy Jacqueline. Yep. And so you have the various, the story of his life as it's told from the people who know him, which when you think of it, you think, oh, well, that's a clever way to put this together and maybe give us something a little more heartfelt, a little more accurate than perhaps what we've seen in the past because it's very, very candid. Yeah, Uh, it sounds like it's almost like a a set of love letters to him, to his life. Well, it is, but I I don't know. I just found that it didn't, uh, like I I watch a lot of documentaries and this format didn't really wow me the way I was hoping it would. Uh, maybe it's because I already knew so much about Belushi. I didn't feel 
Like I definitely got some new stuff out of it, largely because it was like the anecdotal firsthand telling of what happened as told by Harold Ramis or, you know, somebody who maybe is not the first person you would think of when it comes to uh, a particular moment in Belushi's life or career. But at the same time, it, it hit all the strides. It, they didn't really cover anything completely new. So I, you know, it runs almost two hours, which I don't think it needed to be that long, but it's obviously been in the works for a long time because you had Carrie Fisher who in it, who has now passed. You have um, Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis died, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He's died a number of years yeah, ago. Yeah, a number yeah. of years ago. He's in it. There was a few people who, who have who have died in the last few years who are featured prominently in it, whose voices are in it. Like, obviously, the whole thing was done uh, over the radio and the internet, um, I would assume. And But it's obviously been in the works a long time. If you have all of these people contributing, many, well, at least some of whom have died in the last few years. Um, like Carrie Fisher, I think, died in, what, 2016? I mean, if you're a big fan of Belushi, and I know you are, yeah. uh, like, like, watch it. Like, look look for it. Seek it out. I think you'd enjoy it. But if you're just the casual, ah, I don't really know much about him, maybe. And I'm like, mm, I don't know if you want to give two hours to it. Um, the other one I watched that was really good is called Unbanned AJ1. It's about Air Jordans, uh, the sneakers. And if you've watched the Michael Jordan documentary that was released on Netflix earlier this year, in one of those episodes, they do touch on the sneaker component of Michael Jordan's career path briefly in one of the episodes. I think they spent about five or 10 minutes on it, sort of the broad strokes. This documentary runs about 90 minutes. It is a who's who in the world of pop culture today. And it features so many artists athletes and performers and designers and shoe collectors and social media influencers and just all of these people who have um, whose lives have been touched in some way by the Air Jordan sneakers and what they did to change things in the mid 80s when they came out. And again, as a you know, middle-class suburban white kid, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And again, I don't really follow basketball. So a lot of the stuff in this documentary was 100% new to me. Uh, it was a real eye-opener for some of it. And the, the reason the documentary is called Unbanned is they the NBA literally banned the Air Jordan sneakers. They told Michael Jordan, you can't wear those sneakers when you play basketball. And, and Nike basically said, why not? And they go, oh, well, you know, for X, Y, Z reasons, they can't. And if he does, we're going to fine him. Nike rolled the dice and went, that's okay. We'll pay the fine. And they go, he plays 82 games. We're going to fine you 82 times. So like, that's fine. We'll pay the <laughs> fee. And at the time they're like, it could have bankrupt the company, but it did quite the opposite. It was a social commentary and it was a financial success. And then the shoes themselves have become like a collectible, uh, very desirable. And it was just the whole idea of the sneakers were uh, representative of the man himself being such a revolutionary to basketball. And uh, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about this unbanned documentary. It was fantastic. So yeah, Very two, cool. two documentaries, both good, but mm -hmm. the Belushi one was not, not so good. great. Uh, yeah, the Unbanned one was really, really good. Mm -hmm. And if you do watch the Unbanned one, watch it all the way to the end because there's a lot of like, I don't want to say outtakes during the credits, but they interview a ton, a ton of people. And it's a lot of them like saying funny and inappropriate things that didn't really fit 
in the documentary that they obviously didn't want to leave on the cutting room floor. So I had a lot of good laughs while the credits were running. So nice. I got a couple things too. You be proud of me. I've been okay. watching a lot of newer things. So I mentioned before I started watching Cobra Kai. Although it's newer, oh, yes. it still is like rooted in the 80s, right? Uh, and we we moved on to season two. So I've, I've really been enjoying it. It's, 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 it's quite cheesy, but I mean, uh, it's good. I like it. And the other week you were mentioning a show and I thought, well, we got to take a look at this. So I talked to my wife and we started watching The Queen's Gambit because you mentioned oh, yes. it was really good. It, I really like it. It's really oh, good. good. It's really good. And it's so funny. I was reading just today in the news that 100,000 people a day are signing up at chess.com. And eBay has reported a 237% increase in searches for chess sets as a result of this show, which good. to me is a little bit amazing because like, as much as I enjoy it, the one thing with the show is it's, it's quite slow. It's it's a very slow story. The first couple of episodes are very slow. That's yeah. why I told my wife she would. I know she won't like it because she'll never get through those first two episodes. She'll watch them all on fast forward, which it blows my mind that anyone can watch something on fast forward and then yeah. continue to watch it after that. But now I think you mentioned that it's only like seven episodes and it's done. It's a self-contained seven story. Episodes. Yeah, it's based so, on a book, and yeah. the book is loosely based on a real life thing. Because someone asked me that today, they're like, "Is there going to be a season two? And I'm like. No, no, this is based on his real life. Like this is what happened. The story ended at the end of the first season. That's it. It's done. It's based on a book. And I believe that we've watched four episodes so far, but it's still, it's quite slow the way it, the way it just methodically goes through the story. So I'm surprised that it's, it's, you know, gotten this much, you know, um, this much popularity because I mean the general public generally likes things that are a little bit more quicker paced so I mean it's a little surprising um, it's the absence of new content and yeah, this has been a this maybe, has been a yeah. Netflix phenomenon through the whole uh, quarantine w- with no no new movies coming to theaters or with theaters not open for the most part across the country in Canada and the US and with very limited new programming on regular TV what else are you going to do? Netflix drops something new suddenly everybody watches it whether it's good whether it's not everybody watches it simply because they're starving for new content and if it happens to be good the word of mouth certainly helps. Well Netflix has mentioned that it is this is the highest rated scripted series in their history. Yeah, but they don't release numbers, so we have to rely on their right. honesty. And it's not to their advantage to give us a real story and say, this is just doing okay. Mm-hmm. It was it fell behind six other programs we really like that's it's not in their best interest to tell us that. Right. And since we can't validate anything they say anyway, I expect every time they release something new, they're gonna say, This is better than the last thing. Well, I I found it interesting their choice of words because they mentioned it's the highest rated scripted series. Because you just know more people watch Tiger King. But uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention quickly before we move on. Uh, tonight I noticed I was upstairs and on the PVR, I noticed it's got the red dot on it. I'm like, I said to my wife, what? Somebody's recording something. What? What's going on? What are you recording? And she says, oh, that's me. I'm recording the Saved by the Bell reboot. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, oh, jeez. She's like, will you watch it with me? I don't know, man. Jeez. <laughs> so, so she's doing that. Now, did you watch Saved by the Bell way back when, when it was on originally? No. Okay. I'm, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but if you go back and listen to our episode that we did on, oh, um, the, guilty pleasures? on the Guilty Pleasures, I actually liked Saved by the Bell the college years. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I like that show a lot. Uh, but Saved by the Bell, psh, I didn't really care for it, but it is what it is. Um, hey, you know, you know what? So similar story. Mm-hmm. I noticed my PVR had the red dot earlier today. <laughs> and when I looked recorded. to see what was recording, you will be very happy to hear 
that on the Turner Classic Movies channel, it was The Man Who Would Be King with Sean Connery. Oh, nice. You're actually going to watch it? I recorded it this afternoon. Yes. So I, it is now in my queue. I will have watched it by the time we do our next recording. Oh, I'm, I, I can't wait to get your reaction. I think you're really going to like it. I think it's it's one of those sort of hidden gems that it's like something like you never really thought of. or Like I kind of heard of that before. And then you watch it and you're just like, wow, this is like an incredible film. But I mean, who knows? We'll have to see what your yeah. reaction is. Um, I wanted to mention also, uh, regardless of the fact that I did a song on the podcast a couple weeks ago that just showed how hip I am, my kids, they still think I'm lame. So here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, why did Charlie Brown quit his job for more money? Wow. Uh, I don't know. He was tired of working for peanuts. (laughs) Wow. Yes. I love it. Okay. Yeah. True to form, Chris. Good Mm -hmm. job. Let me tell you about this Dukes of Hazzard remake I've been imagining. What are you doing? Some of this stuff was just too wacky for me. I am the crotchety old guy who just hates everything new. They're always having parties. And then I also watch Three's Company. This is my lot in life. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. Him and so-and-so in a romantic relationship, and they open an ice cream store. It's a dinklage. He was always making moonshine. He went on to do gay porn. Oh, my, my, my. What the hell? All right, so this week, the topic we've chosen to do our top five lists on is TV supporting characters. Yes. And this was a topic that I had suggested, and I was a little concerned as I was trying to put my list together that I may have bitten off a little more than I could chew, because I found this was a very difficult list to put together. And before we get into the top fives, I I want Mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about just the whole idea of supporting characters. Okay. But let me set this up a little bit. So you and I spoke about how we were going to um, classify a supporting character. And one of the caveats I had suggested to you was Mm -hmm. let's stay away from animation because with the Simpsons and South Park and Family Guy and American Dad and King of the Hill, there are a lot of very strong, and BoJack Horseman, there's a lot of very strong animated shows that have have been on the air over the last 20 or 30 years that are full of fantastic characters, both lead supporting and guest characters, Mm -hmm. that that may be a good topic for a future discussion to talk more about animated primetime shows. Sure. So we'd sort of put that down as a rule is let's just stay away from animation and let's stick to, to real life live action. Even so though, was, even though Eric Cartman is one of the greatest supporting characters that has ever been in the history of television. And I, and there's a few uh, animated ones from those other shows mm-hmm. I mentioned that are easily going to be in my top five. If we ever do that one, uh, the other thing for me personally is the way I was trying to imagine this was I was trying to think of a character. So, uh, you know, the caveat obviously is this is our personal list. Right. We're not looking of for course. the supporting actor or actress that has been decorated the most nope. by the awards committees or things of that nature, or has been on the show with the most uh, views or has made the most money. Although in, I, there are certainly a few on my list that might fall into that sort of vein. They don't all, and they don't need to. And for me, what I tried to imagine was, could this person be removed from the show 
And would the show still have legs? Like, how vital is this character to the inner workings of the show and the relationships of the characters? Could you recast this with someone else? Would it work? Could you say this person left the show entirely? Would it work? And so that was sort of how I, I really tried to um, come up with my list was I wanted someone who was so integral to the program that I couldn't imagine the show without them or without or or their role being played by anybody else. And I also wanted to make sure it was someone who appeared maybe not in every single episode, but in just about every episode. Um, so it's not just, hey, this show's been on the air a long time and once or twice a year, so-and-so drops in for the Christmas special or something like that. Right. I wanted someone who actually appears all the time. Uh, now, I, I don't know if you necessarily sort of held to that exact strictness. Yeah, I think that's so. Where, that's yeah, where I'm I think I did. Yeah. Okay. So the real challenge I had, again, before we get into these lists, because I think this mm -hmm. is going to be a discussion as we go through them, is I had a challenge of separating a show where you've got clear distinction between a lead character and a supporting character versus an ensemble. And the example yeah. I use is Friends. Yeah, so that's in tough. Friends, you have the three males and three females. And so there's six of them. And uh, are they all considered lead characters or is there mm -hmm. a clear, is it, would it be an ensemble? So I said, like, for example, Joey. Is Joey the, the lead actor on Friends? Well, no, I don't no. think so. But is he a supporting actor? Well, I think his role oh, is too yeah. big to be a supporting character. Yeah. And if you look at the economics of it, the six of the, the performers, they all got paid the same. Yep. And because they all got paid the same, I think they pretty much got equal-ish screen time. So there's a lot of shows where as much as in my mind I felt, well, that character was clearly intended to be a supporting character, very quickly it became more of an ensemble. Now. In all fairness, I do have at least one person on my list that I think could be classified in an ensemble, and when we get to them, we'll talk about it a little more. But the other thing that I know we're going to talk about, because this definitely hits my list, and I'm pretty sure it hits yours as well, is in some cases when a show begins, a character is very clearly a supporting character. Yep. And then as the show develops, the either the mm -hmm. popularity of that character is sure. such that they get more screen time, the chops of the actor or actress in the role is so significant that you just realize this person mm -hmm. needs to be in it more. Or the show just simply changes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the examples that I've always heard is when The Simpsons first came on the air, it was a show about Bart Simpson and the people in Bart Simpson's life. But after a season or two, they started to realize the value in in making all the family members of The Simpsons a little more equal and giving Homer as much or more time on in each episode than Bart. It wasn't just the Bart Simpson show. You made they made it more about the whole family and that. I think has really led to the show having the longevity it's had. Whereas in the first season, the parents are more supporting characters to the children. By like you look at it now, you never consider Homer Simpson the supporting character in that show. And I think some of the shows and some of the characters that we're going to talk about tonight may fall into that that classification. And there are a few clear examples that I and I'll talk about them later that I deliberately left off the list because I just didn't feel that they were supporting characters long enough. They became lead characters so quickly that they didn't really qualify in my mind uh, as supporting. So I just want to say, I just love the investment that you make in all of our topics. It's just so awesome. You just like fully throw yourself in, you know, like hey, you gotta, analyze it, the whole thing. Yeah. It's just, I, I got to give you props. Good, good on you. Okay. So, 
uh, we've each got our top five list, yep. and, and I'll start in just a second with mine. Okay. But there are two characters that I want to just call attention to uh, as sort of honorable mentions. Sure, sure. They Who do you got? Very much, I wanted to put them on my list, and they just didn't quite make it. Mm. Actually, I had a lot, but I narrowed my honorable mentions down so to just. So hard to get to five, right? Yeah. The first, the first one, and this, so very often when we have these lists, I try to put together my list and then I run it past my wife without showing her. I say, this is our topic. And she'll throw out a few names or a few movies and we'll see where we agree and disagree. And often she'll give me one or two examples of things that I have clearly overlooked and I'll have to adjust my list a little bit because honestly, she's smarter and better at these than I am anyway. So when I gave her the topic, one of the first names she said was, you've got to have Megan Mullaney who played Karen Walker on Will and Grace. Right. And she said that show again, when I explained the, the criteria, she's like, that show wouldn't work without that supporting character. She is pivotal. She's in every episode. She's a clearly developed character, but she's clearly a supporting mm-hmm. character. And I said, you know what? I've only seen a few episodes of Will and Grace and the ones I've seen, I agree, but I didn't feel that I knew the show or the performer well enough to really include her on the list. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that I think she deserves uh, some credit and, and some acknowledgement. She was outstanding being, on that show. Yeah, being yeah. a clear, clear name that should be on this list. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's just I never watched the show. So I don't feel I can do her the justice she deserves by by putting her on. So she, honorable mention for sure. My second honorable mention is Alfonso Ribeiro, who plays Carlton Banks on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Sure. So you got to think when The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air came on, you had Will Smith who had very little, if no, acting experience, and you put him in this sitcom. And in order for this sitcom to work, and in order for Will Smith to become Will Smith, Oscar nominee, superstar, movie star, everything, you need to put a lot of very talented people around him because he's the star of the show. So you have this star of this sitcom who is, you know, relatively, if not completely, inexperienced in the medium of television, and you need to you need to surround him with talent. And uh, Carlton Banks' character, that's the talent. That's the that's the heavy lifting to support Will Smith as the Fresh Prince on that show. That show wouldn't have worked without that pairing of Will and Carlton. And in my mind, that's a perfect example of a supporting character. Um, and again, uh, Alfonso Ribeiro is is such a talented performer in his own right. Again, definitely deserves some acknowledgement. He just he, I had him as my number five, and I literally just switched my five and six picks about an hour before we came there. So those are the two honorable mentions I want to throw up before we get started. Mm, those are good Any ones. honorable mentions from you before we jump? No, in? not really. I think I just want to just touch base on uh, Fresh Prince. I think that's a really good example because the other members of the cast were not what you would call experienced actors like James Avery and uh, Tatiana Ali, I think was her first job. Karen Parsons, same thing. She hasn't worked ever since. And uh, so, yeah, I think you're, you're kind of right. There it was really just Carlton that kind of in, influenced that. I don't think I have any um, honorable mentions. I'm pretty happy with my list. Um, so I'm ready to just dive right in if you are. So you want to start okay. with your number five? Who do you got? All right. So my number five is, Captain Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, played by the very talented Andre Brower. Chris, do you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? I do not. Uh, so so funny enough, my wife and I, as I've mentioned numerous times on the show, we're always looking for a new show to binge watch. And and one of the things I, I want to get, uh, you know, I've mentioned before, is to have like a comedy show and a drama show and just kind of go back and forth between them. And we tried watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I thought it'd be something I would enjoy. I've heard nothing but good things about it. And we watched one episode and did not like it. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, yeah. uh, we'll agree to disagree on that one. Okay. So uh, I, I'll admit I, I haven't I'm not completely up to date on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It ran, I think, 
five or six seasons and then it was canceled and then it got picked up again i want to say by netflix or one of the streaming channels and they've been doing new seasons i'm not quite caught up on all the new seasons but i have seen a lot of the the newer episodes hit and miss here and there and i was definitely the first five or six seasons i've seen every episode so um for those who maybe aren't as familiar, it's a sitcom that takes place in a police precinct. And uh, Andy Samberg, formerly of Saturday Night Live, is the is, you know, the male lead of the show. And Andre Brower plays the captain of the precinct, who is the, you know, and I use this term with air quotes, the straight man to Andy Samberg's uh, lead character. Uh, Andre Brower, being a, a person of color, uh, plays a, a gay man. And that's part of his his character is that he's like the first gay openly gay captain of the of the New York police force the Brooklyn police force and so th- that just helps establish the character's motivations and and who he is and and what he is at the beginning of the show um so you sort of have a sense of who he is but they've really developed his character very well but just comedy is difficult i mean chris you were a performer for a long time and you can mm-hmm. certainly speak to this it's it's I, again, not that I'm a performer, but in my understanding is it's easier to be the person who's out there and acting goofy and 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 telling the funny jokes. It's a lot harder to be the straight man, again, because he plays a gay character. I have to keep air quoting says straight man. It's hard to be the straight man in a comedy duo. Like that, in many cases, people say is the more difficult task. Um, and Audrey Bauer is such a talented actor. He has been nominated for 11 primetime Emmy nominations. He has been nominated four of those 11 times for playing Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like, this guy has some serious acting chops. He had previously been nominated and won when he um, was on um, Homicide, Life on the Street, which is obviously a very serious, dramatic role. And then in this case, he switched from drama to comedy. And although his character isn't laugh out loud, ha-ha, over-the-top funny, he has developed this this rhythm. And you you can't imagine this show without him. In fact, there have been some episodes and some storylines where, as the captain, he's been demoted or he's he's been on witness protection where he's sort of removed from the main story. And other actors have been brought in to be the replacement captains. And those episodes just are not as good. Like, it's very clear that the chemistry that's developed between these performers very much depends on who they are. And with him as the missing piece of that puzzle, it just doesn't work. So my number five pick is Andre Brower, Captain Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Interesting that you go with the comedy and go with the straight man instead, you mm-hmm. know. But the straight man has always been a really major, you know, component uh, of comedy, whether it was, you know, Bud Abbott or all the mm-hmm. way up to uh, even Chris Farley and um, and David Spade. David Spade was yeah. the straight man. You always you got to have that straight man, right? It's really, really important. So yeah. Again, air quotes, straight man, because he plays a gay character. So. Mm-hmm. Which was interesting. But it's funny because that you mentioned uh, the, your actor. I, I'm not familiar with him. Like really? I, I don't really know his work again. Like I don't, I didn't really watch that show. I was just, did you ever not, watch Homicide? Life no, I didn't street. watch Homicide: Life oh on the God, Street. Oh my so good in that. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with any of his other work, so I don't know if I really know him all that well. So interesting. Well, I mean, he's he's getting a little older. I mean, you look at the clips of him from Homicide in the '90s, and you look at him as Captain Holt the here and now. I mean, it's been 25 years, and he's he's a little older, a little grayer, For sure. a few a few pounds heavier, but mm. aren't we all? So. Uh, certainly not a knock on his on his uh, acting ability. All right. he, he is phenomenally gifted. All gotcha. right, who's your number five? Pick? My number five. Who her full name is Carla Maria Victoria Angelina Teresa Apollonia Lozapone Tortelli Labec. Yes, from Cheers, Carla Tortelli. <laughs> Such a good character. So she's this Roman Catholic Italian American 
you know, stereotypical character. And the thing is that it's so cool about her is she basically has this deep rooted disdain for every single person that she meets, which makes her the perfect waitress, of course, you know. And the thing is, like, she's pregnant all the time. And the thing is, like, the wise cracking next door neighbor has long been a sitcom staple. But sort of Carla Tortelli just took things to a whole new level whether she did it on Cheers. And some of the men she that were in her life were like like Nick Tortelli and Eddie LeBeck. And 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 Rhea Perlman, the actress, she couldn't have been more different than Carla. Like in real life, she's a lot closer to the character that she played on Taxi when she was Danny DeVito's girlfriend, um, Zena Sherman. And completely unrelated to the, to the character of Carla. But I love the fact that she was married to Danny DeVito. Now, they separated in 2017 after 40 years of being married. But, you know, I mean, she she had the talent. I mean, she won four Emmys for playing Carla. She won it in 84, 85, 86, and 89. And if you think about it, the show almost got canceled in its first season. It finished 74th out of 77 shows in 1982. But it had such a loyal fan base that just spread the news of the show like through word of mouth. And before you knew it, it was the number one show on television. And it had a lot to do with the writing, for sure. You know, probably beside besides MASH and maybe the Mary Tyler Moore show, Cheers might have had some of the best writing in the history of television. But I think a lot of its success had to do with the cast. And for me, Carla Tortelli was right at the top of it. So she was my number five. What do you got for your nice. number four? Good pick. Yeah, yeah I, got, I got to agree with that. <laughs> she was uh, so good. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, here's one of those shows that I was I think it was a little before my time, like it was on as I was growing up. And I think a lot of it went over my head. And it's one of those shows that now when I go back, I just feel it's a little dated. But to your point, I think the episodes that I've gone back to that I have enjoyed, it's largely been the writing is solid. The character oh, development so solid. I mean, uh, you know, and so many so many successful uh, actors and actresses have have come from or through cheers as, as a way to, uh, go on to bigger, better things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no good pick. All right. Uh, my number four pick yes. is the character Taylor Mason from billions played by Asia Kate Dillon. Uh, this, uh, performer is the first ever non-binary character in a major role on TV. Um, uh, they they use the pronouns they them, and uh, they were on or they are still on the show Billions, which has run for six seasons. They started in season two as the supporting character of Taylor Mason, and I would argue that by the season we're in now, the sixth season, even maybe last season, the fifth season, um, they clearly were becoming more of a lead character. So uh, you don't watch Billions, do you, Chris? Have you started? No, no, I haven't no. watched it. But was she not? I just they, I, they, I mentioned she. oh sorry sorry they whatever was was they not in or Orange is the New Black uh, yes uh, which is a show I have not watched but I believe you just finished binging the series right yes like my wife and I just watched it and I want to say that uh, that this actor was a uh, like one of the Nazis in it or something like I remember I remember that like that, yeah. Uh, again, I haven't seen it, so I, I can't say, but I know that their performance was, uh, you know, touted as being quite strong in Orange is the New Black, and uh, they've been amazing in, in Billions. So just, again, for people who maybe haven't seen Billions, uh, it's the premise is there's a hedge fund 
manager who's like uber rich, hence the billions in the title. And there is the uh, attorney general of the United States, or I think he's the attorney general of New York State at the beginning. And the two of them have a shared history and they are at odds with each other. And the lawman is trying to catch the investor who is really shady. And the shady investor is trying to do all sorts of shady things and trying to avoid the, the persecution of the law. And the dichotomy of these two characters was interesting in the first season, but it did, wasn't really necessarily going anywhere. Like it sort of was like, okay, yeah, you know, good versus bad. We get it. And then in season two, they introduced this character of Taylor Mason and it was a real wild card um, where the character came in and sort of put both of these other major lead characters on their heels in a lot of regards. And there's now this sort of three-way power struggle between these three characters on the show. Again, this isn't really ruining it if you haven't seen it, but it's something to look forward to if, if you're planning to watch it. And I couldn't imagine this show working without, uh, without Taylor Mason in it. Um, they're, uh, you know, again, a fantastic addition to this show in the second season, uh, originally as a, as a strong supporting character and very quickly within a year or two becoming arguably one of the three leads on this show. So my number four pick is, uh, Taylor Mason, played by Asia Kate Dillon from the show Billions. There you go. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Staying true to form, you mentioned newer shows. I mentioned older shows. And as I'm sure you know, Derek, one of my favorite TV shows of all time is WKRP in Cincinnati. And most people think of Dr. Johnny Fever when they think of that show. And rightly so. I mean, Howard Hasman created, you know, this iconic TV character, for sure. But however, my favorite character on the show was always one of the supporting characters. Although you could argue, like you had mentioned, they were all kind of supporting characters because it was an ensemble cast. Sure. But interestingly, on the first season, though, just to get a little bit of a tangent, the only two actors in the opening credits were uh, Gary Sandy and Gordon Jump, Travis and Carlson. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they, they were supposed to be the leads for the show, but I think the supporting characters were so strong. You know, the show started to kind of feature everybody a little bit more evenly. But... Of all the supporting characters, my favorite was none other than Les Nessman. I thought you were going to go with Herb Tarlin. No. Good pick. Les Nessman's a good pick as well. Richard Sanders was just so good in that role. Like, there there was a rumor for a long time that he sang the opening theme. But it wasn't him. It was a singer by the name of Steve Carlyle that sang it. But uh, Richard Sanders was a singer. His character was so interesting. It just so many ways. So <laughs> number one, he was he was like this like anti-communist <laughs> kind of guy that used to come out and, and rear its head. And also his sexuality was always called into question. And it got started early in the show. It was like the third episode of the show was called Less on a Ledge. And it featured him. He was threatening to jump off the building to his death because um, one of the athletes on the, the, the Cincinnati Reds thought he was gay. And the episode was all about the stigma of homosexuality back in 1978. And there was this whole subplot going on about Johnny suggesting to Herb that Jennifer had a sex change operation. She was really a man. And... All the characters are on the offensive and they're trying to, you know, stand up for Les. And then it was interesting. Les calls the ball player at the end to sort of mend fences. And right before he hangs up the phone, he says, goodbye, Bruce. And it got this big laugh because the, the joke was Bruce 
was considered a stereotypical gay name back in the 70s. I, I'd heard that before yeah. when they did the Incredible Hulk. They didn't call yes. him Bruce Banner. They called him David Banner for exactly that reason. They which... changed it to David Banner, Bill Bixby's character. Yeah. You're right. And they did that just because of the implication that that name Bruce had in 1978. So that's really interesting you mentioned that because that's true when they did the Incredible mm-hmm. Hulk. But anyway, but back to last. Um, so there was this recurring theme of his masculinity that was always going. I remember there was a show at Jennifer's apartment. Steel Hawthorne was like her boyfriend. And um, and he says to Les, he's like, I think a man's name says a lot about him. What did you say your name was again? He's like, Les. <laughs> <laughs> and and um uh remember when he had the tape around his desk on the floor to signify that, where the that, where the walls yeah. would be, you know, if he had That's his what own. I always remember yeah. is the is the the thing and they they always I always thought it was interesting that despite the silliness of the idea, everybody he worked with respected it. Despite the the the, the perhaps lack of respect they had for him as a person or as, as as someone who had his particular job, that was something they always seemed to just say, okay, we'll acknowledge this and we will comply with this as you have asked us to. And I always, I always liked that about the show, that he had this quirky thing with this whole, if we had walls, this is where they'd be. And I put tape down and he would even make them like pretend knock and stuff. Oh yeah. I, I, I They'd have to knock. And then and there was times when Andy would pretend he would like lean in, like he was holding onto the door and leaning into the office to talk to Les because they respected it so much. And then there was all the whole thing with the Silver Sow Awards and you can touch oh, my yes. carts, but you can't ever touch my tear sheets. Touch my carts, but never my tear sheets. And then, of course, there's the episode where he covers the infamous Thanksgiving turkey drop, you know, and, and where he's like, there's a helicopter coming into view. There seems to be a banner flying behind it. And it says, happy Thanksgiving. And the people in the studio are like, come on. And he's like, W K. They're like, come on, get the call letters out. And then when the turkeys start dropping and he's like, they're crashing into windshields. My God, the humanity. Oh, the humanity. (laughs) Such a memorable show, memorable cast. But to me, none were more memorable than Richard Sanders' Les Nessman. So he's my number four. And it's timely. I think I've seen that Les Nessman, oh, the humanity, uh, in my social media feed at least a dozen times today. Because, again, Thanksgiving in the U.S., perfect timing. So Everyone's sharing. Good pick. All right. So you're number three. Who do you got? Number three. Number three. Okay. My number three is uh, Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad, played by the very talented Aaron Paul. So that's a good uh, one. Breaking Bad, a huge TV show in the last decade or so, ran six seasons, although they broke them up. You could argue it was really more like eight seasons, but... Mm. uh, Jesse Pinkman was the uh, supporting character to uh, Brian Cranston's Walter White, and again, it's it's like a lot of these shows. This the the main character works, but the main character works better when there's strong supporting characters. In some cases, the supporting character is like a foil to them. In the case of comedy, very often you have this foil. In some cases, you have sort of the yin yang where it's like the good versus the bad. Uh, or or the supporting character acts as the conscience, if you will. You saw that a lot with like Fresh Prince with Carlton and Will. You had like the the, the angel and the devil on the shoulder kind of thing. Um, with Breaking Bad, it was sort of that same idea with the, the good bad where 
you know, the start of the show, you have uh, Walter White is, you know, can do no wrong. He's he's a, you know, a good man in a bad situation. And you have Jesse Pinkman as the supporting character who is already, you know, quote unquote, fallen. You know, he's he's clearly already a criminal. He's clearly already a drug dealer. He's a bad seed. But there's potential there. And so you sort of have these two characters that end up supporting each other. Um, and that d- definitely drives the direction of the show. And again, you could argue by the end of the run that Jesse is no longer a supporting character and is almost in every way an equal lead character to Walter White, even though the show is really the Walter White saga. Um, the the role of the, the, the character of Jesse Pinkman is, is vital to, Walter White's story playing out the way it does. And in many cases, you can sort of see the rises and the falls in Walter White's character based on how he interacts with Jesse, how he early on sort of the teacher coaches him and and uh, nourishes the the seed of, of genius that he sees. And then later in the series where he starts to screw him over, it's like, you know, he kills the you know, again, spoilers if you haven't seen Breaking Bad. But hey, if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. You know, um, you know, later in the show where Walter White, uh, you know, kills Jesse's girlfriend and threatens to have killed some of the people that Jesse feels close to down the road. Like it's this manipulation of the character. It's again, the, the supporting character of Jesse and Breaking Bad is 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 vital to the development of the Walter White character and the slipping of Walter White from good to bad as, as it's compared and contrasted to Jesse. Like, so again, at the start you have Walter being the good and Jesse being the bad, but by the end, those roles have clearly changed where you get the sense that Jesse may have had a bad deal for a lot of his life, but he's starting to like make better choices. And whereas Walter's becoming the bad of the bad. So you need that sort of yin and yang in order to really illustrate how the lead is falling from grace by having something to compare it to. And Jesse certainly is that in Breaking Bad. Uh, Just a couple of notes about Aaron Paul. He's been nominated for eight primetime Emmy nominations. Five of those are for playing Jesse Pinkman and three times he's won for playing Jesse. Uh, So clearly again, another guy with, with acting chops and um, you know, he's, he's done a few things since breaking bad that, you know, from what I've seen have not been all that great, but uh, he's still a fairly young guy. So I suspect we're going to see some uh, additional great things from him in the future. But my number three pick for supporting character, Jesse Pinkman, breaking bad. And I normally can't comment on the newer stuff because I've never watched it, but I have watched Breaking Bad. And I agree, his performance, he could have easily played that character as this sort of ironically detached millennial, you know, type character. But it's all about redemption. And, and like yeah. even the parts with the gangs and like he doesn't want to kill the kid at the park and stuff like what Aaron Paul did with that character was outstanding. That's, that's a great pick, bud. Good, good. Pick. Uh, well, OK, so in all fairness, this is one that I had overlooked and I reached out to my friend Jamie and he had suggested this one and I felt kind of silly for having overlooked it. So uh, my tip tip of the hat mm-hmm. to Jamie. Thank you for that suggestion, bud. I'm going to go a completely different direction for my next one. Uh, <laughs> so my number three, as you know, uh, I've made a bit of a personal mission in my life to introduce my two young boys to everything I can from Gen X movies and music and TV shows. And we've watched a lot of Sesame Street together. And although the show is still in production, um, Sesame Street was at its best back in the 70s. And the character on the show, oh, my favorite character for sure is Cookie Monster. 
And he's my number three pick. I love Cookie Monster. And, and before you, you know, you just dismiss it. Think about it. He's basically a walking id. You know, like Frank Oz has done a lot of incredible things over the years. I mean, hell, this is the man that gave Yoda, you know, to the world, right? But what he does with Cookie Monster is outstanding. You know, it's not just the googly eyes. You know, you know, it, it, it's it's easy to think of this character as a mindless blue carpet that just eats cookies. And, and sure, I mean, he is that. But there's something sort of powerful for me in the way how simply he sees the world. You know, like there's one scene that he has with this little girl and he asks her if, if she likes cookies. And she's like, no. And he responds. He's like, you know, like cookies, how we be friends. I mean, just like his language is all broken up into like single words and half the time they're not even proper sentences, but there's something that's just really incredibly basic and honest and real about this character. I love how he just chews up the cookies and they just fly everywhere. He doesn't even eat them, right? And, and then how he eats everything. There's one where, where they do, do you remember the news flash? They used to do with Kermit, and Kermit would go to like different fairy tales and things like that. Would he be in the trench coat? Yes, yes. And he yeah, was a news yeah. guy with the with the microphone. And the, yes. I remember the one he did with the princess and the pea. And of course, the princess is Cookie Monster, <laughs> and Cookie Monster just eats all of the mattresses. And kids just love Cookie Monster because he just is what he is. You know, he likes something, and his whole life is just sort of driven by it. And I think. Adults like Cookie Monster because he represents a, just a sort of side to all humans. You know, in, in some way, we we all wish we could just be sort of blindly driven by our most basic wants, you know. And, I mean, who just wouldn't want to grab a pile of cookies and just go to town on them, you know, with, with zero consequences? But every time I see uh, a scene on Sesame Street with Cookie Monster, I, I end up laughing my ass off. And it, it makes me feel like a kid again. And, and, and for me, I think that's the point of the whole character. So as crazy as it sounds, a Muppet is my number three and it's Cookie Monster. No, it's a good pick. That's <laughs> Just, a little unconventional, them. but uh, yeah, yeah that's, that's why we make these lists. One of the trivia things that I always found was interesting with Cookie Monster is, as, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, Sesame Street is an international worldwide phenomenon. Oh, as well has as been it should for be. decades. Yeah. And it is it, it has been adopted in countries around the world and in some cases they just can air the same shows they air in america with maybe dubbing or they can you know again because they're muppets you it's easy to just overdub the voices but in other countries they they have original programming where they've had to tweak the characters a little bit for for a number of reasons and i know with i want to say it's somewhere perhaps i think it's in the middle east instead of cookie monster because you know, it was hard for children to relate to Cookie Monster because kids didn't necessarily have the kind of access to sweets and cookies like they did in the U.S. They changed it so that the character, instead of wanting cookies, wanted yams. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And and because apparently that was that was uh, the equivalent sort of desirable uh, uh, thing to cookies. And I want to say that the, the yam, the yam equivalent of the Cookie Monster is green, if I remember correctly. Oh, it's a different color. So again, different cultures have adopted these ideas. Like you said, right? It's the character is still played the same way, but you had to make that one small concession right. in order for it to appeal to children from a different part of the world in a different culture to relate to it. You had to just make that small change. And I always thought that was interesting that that, that was the concession was we're not gonna have to make that he loves cookies. We're gonna say that he loves yams. It's like, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> he likes eating beets. And the thing is, I, re- I remember hearing too that they wanted to make Cookie Monster more PC. So in recent years, they may have had him eating like vegetables and stuff like that. I don't know if any of this is true. I don't watch anything new. I don't know. But I make my kids watch all this stuff on YouTube for like from the 70s. And we just love it all. And I mean, just... Just let him eat the cookies. That's the whole point. It's just that 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 walking id that he is. I don't know. I just love him. Okay, so you're number two. Who do you got? All right, my number two is uh, C.J. Craig from The West Wing, played by Allison Janney. Now, this is really going to tread back on what I said at the beginning around the difference between a lead and a supporting versus an ensemble mm-hmm. and a supporting character who becomes a leading character. And, and Allison Janney's character of C.J. Craig on The West Wing hits all of these checkboxes and may technically disqualify her from this list, but she's so good. I couldn't put her, I couldn't do the list without her. She was one of the first names that came to mind when I suggested this topic. So uh, you, I know you haven't watched through the West Wing yet. I think if I remember correctly, you've watched a few episodes. I watched the first two episodes and my wife didn't like it. So I kind of was, you know, pulled back from watching it, but I thought it was fantastic from what I saw. Which it is. And I mean, those first four, three or four seasons when Aaron Sorkin does all the writing, like it's never, it's never better. And uh, so Allison Janney plays CJ Craig, who for the initial run of the show is the press secretary and is clearly a supporting character, but is also clearly part of the larger ensemble, which in the West Wing is all of the senior staff that report to the president. And this is one of those ones where it was kind of hard to differentiate between, well, Who's the lead and who's the supporting? Because when you're doing 20 or so shows per season, if you were to like literally time the amount of screen time and count the amount of lines that the various characters have in in a show like this that's so dialogue heavy, I got to think it's a pretty flat line when you compare characters to characters. But it is what it is. CJ was listed as the as a supporting character for the first few seasons. In fact, the first two years this show was on the air, she was nominated for uh, Emmy for Best Supporting Actress and won the first two years. And then in the next four years, she was nominated for the lead actress and she won twice. So for six years in a row, Allison Janney was nominated for Primetime Emmy for playing the same character. And of those six years, she won four times. And, and again, the first two years supporting character, the next four years as a lead character. So again, this is an example where the critics and the people watching the show, and I'm sure the writers and producers as well, just realized this performer is so good in this role. And this character can be so much more than we have maybe originally envisioned her to be, that she deserves to be on the same level as all the other lead performers. And so her role changed over the course of the show, but her, her, uh, value to the show certainly didn't change uh, or at least got better if anything so again i just want to talk about allison janney for a minute she's been nominated for 11 primetime emmy emmys and uh she has uh won seven times in her career she's won a golden globe she's won an oscar like she is the tour de force she's the she's the real deal she is exceptionally talented she's won for comedies she's won for dramas and she's unlike any performer that's that's out there and is every bit deserving of all the accolades she's got and those first few seasons of the west wing i cannot imagine anybody else in her in her role playing her character spouting the dialogue that she presents and doing the things that she does in the way that she does, it just, you know, going back to my original criteria, you could not have recast this with somebody else and had the same amount of success. I don't believe it. I, there's that X factor that she brings to this that is 
it's impossible to replicate. And so she she was definitely near the top of my list. And she's my number two. Uh, she won the Oscar for I, Tonya, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, everything she's in, she just makes it better. I remember she played a small part in uh, Howard Stern's movie, Private Parts. Yes. And she's just a standout. Like everything she's yes. in, she's just good. That, I think that's she's a good the, actually the first person on screen in the Howard Stern movie when they begin and they're doing those like yeah. candid interviews. I yeah. think she's I think the she first person who you see and you hear from. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so my number two, the 80s. You know, I love the 80s. And, no and, kidding. And this decade was known for some really, really great sitcoms, you know. And the thing is, sitcoms are basically a dead art form now. But there was a time when sitcoms ruled TV, you know. And th- I think for me, that was one of the best things about growing up as a Gen Xer. Um, and, and a lot of the best sitcoms revolved around families. And one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and I've mentioned this a couple times, was Family Ties. Just, I think the concept of the show, it was just perfect for the 80s. You know, you got these two hippies from the 60s. They have these sort of deeply liberal beliefs. And, you know, they care about the environment. They care about their fellow man. And, of course... Their oldest son is a staunch conservative who thinks Richard Nixon is a role model, right? So the, the whole dichotomy between the, you know, the son and the parents, you know, it really just sort of plays up that whole generation gap thing. And that really quickly became the focus of the show. And, and, it, and it worked well. And it worked well for one reason. And that was because Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton. And let's be honest, you should hate this guy. You know, and in the hands of a lesser actor, Alex Keaton would have come off as an unlikable, selfish bigot. But what happened? Michael J. Fox basically did the unthinkable and he made Alex P. Keaton relatable. And it was really the perfect thing for for a country that was obsessed with Ronald Reagan at the time and on Reaganomics. And really, if you think about it, the 80s were actually quite conservative at the time and Alex P. Keaton was sort of representative of sort of the traditional role of the parents. The parents, uh, Michael Gross and Meredith Baxter Burney, were more representative of the kids in the relationship. So in a lot of ways, it kind of flipped the idea of the traditional family sitcom kind of on its head. And it was all because of one of, to me, one of the greatest supporting characters in television history, and that's Alex P. Keaton. So that's my number two. I think he's another example of someone who, although he was clearly supporting at the beginning, became bigger as the show went on. And more and more of the episodes, from what I recall, tended to focus around. And I mean, obviously, Michael J. Fox became a a powerhouse, right? Like he was in Back to the Future and Teen Wolf in the same summer and then came back to do how many more seasons of Family Ties? Like, it's hard to make that guy the supporting character at that point. People tune in to see this performer that they've grown to uh, admire and enjoy the work of through these other mediums. So, uh, but yeah, definitely at the beginning, a supporting character and yeah, for sure. He, uh, he's, you can't imagine that show without him in that role. Exactly. All right. So now we're getting down to it near number one. All right. When I first proposed this idea, this was the very first name that popped into my mind and I could not be dissuaded despite many of the other great names that we've already mentioned. Okay. Who do you got? My number one all time favorite and what I feel is one of the most important supporting characters to ever appear on TV is Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. Oh yes, of course. That makes sense. Yep. I mean, I'm a big sci-fi nerd, so there's that, but Again, think of how important Star Trek has become to pop culture. It's a phenomenon that has never gone away. 
And at almost, I believe at any time now, if you turn on a network television in any country somewhere, Star Trek is playing and heck it's playing on my TVs half the day. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, the, the, the whole Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock pairing. Uh, Again, I keep talking about this for the lead character to be that great of a lead character. You need a strong number two. Or in this case, number one, first officer. Okay, a little humor there. Um, Nerd humor. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you have William Shatner as Captain Kirk, who everyone remembers. You say Star Trek, and most people, uh, assuming that uh, you didn't grow up with the next gen, when you say, who's the captain of the Enterprise? The first answer you're going to get is Captain Kirk. And in the same breath, you're going to also get, who else is in Star Trek? Mr. Spock. Like, it's a, it's a one-two combo. And... It was just such a clever idea to have this captain who is so emotional and charismatic and and overdramatic. Like yeah, he's yeah. overdramatic. Like yep. he's just he he is he exudes charisma and ingenuity and he's like this driving force. And who do they again, it's this whole idea of the straight man. Who do they pair him with? The literal unemotional Vulcan first officer who's all about logic, who doesn't doesn't uh, uh, concede to emotion. It's all about, you know, just the facts. He, he is the literal straight man to Kirk's emotional uh, onslaught of every emotion you could have, the desires and the fears and everything else. And you have that balanced by Mr. Spock, who is the, the you know, the very much the neutral well, not necessarily neutral, but the very controlled lack of emotion. Logical. Logic yeah. Right. And and so you have what generally you would have in a comedy duo, you have in a serious dramatic duo and it works so well. And again, this pairing of these characters, this idea of the, the, the emotional human with the unfeeling Vulcan um, has been carried forward through this this science fiction convention uh, over the years, over the iterations of the show. They did all, you know, they did, they only did three seasons of the show in the 60s. And for, I just looked this up this week, Leonard Nimoy was nominated for supporting actor all three seasons he was in Star Trek. <laughs> I had no Rightly idea. So. Yeah. He did, I mean, he didn't win, but I got to think in, in part because people probably didn't take the show that seriously. They didn't, uh, no. But you go back and watch those original Star Trek episodes, and sure, some of them are pretty cheesy, and even by today's standards, and being sci-fi, you sort of have to laugh at some of them. But I think the message behind so many of those shows is is so strong that they're worth watching, and the performance by Nimoy to consistently be the on-feeling, unemotional, logic-driven character, and to be able to take it seriously and stay in character and make it work. And it does. It works so well. And then you have those very rare occasions on the show where, for whatever reason, he has to display emotion. And those scenes are even more powerful um, because you know that, like, this something has happened that is so... Unexpected. Like I can remember one of the episodes where uh, Mr. Spock and uh, Captain Kirk have to fight to the death and Spock thinks yep. he's killed Captain Kirk. And of course, it's been a big, it's been this trick where Kirk has taken these these drugs or whatever to make himself look dead. And then at the end, Spock comes back on the ship. and He's like, I will be turning myself over for court martial. I've killed my captain. And then when he finds out the captain's alive, he like smiles and he cheers. He's like, oh, Jim, I'm so happy you're alive. <laughs> and it's like. 
this is the first time we're seeing Spock display emotion. And it's just like, wow, it, it was just that much stronger a performance to see it for the first time. And yeah, I can't imagine a more influential or powerful supporting character uh, than Leonard Nimoy playing yep. Mr. Spock. And it's That's a role a that he continued to play his whole life and that he was known for forever mm-hmm. and ever. And, you know, when he passed away, I, you know, I, I mean, it was it was sad for me because I had always admired his work, but his uh, his his importance can't be underplayed. And I think that Mr. Spock is definitely my number one supporting TV character of all time. Love it. Great pick. All right. So once in a while, a supporting character comes along that, you know, surpasses the leads and becomes the breakout star. You mentioned that earlier. And yeah, I was honestly I was going to put Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory on this list, but oh, I felt that's a good that. One, yeah. I didn't feel that he was a supporting character long enough in that run to count, but uh, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Like we've seen these breakout stars happen before, like with Jimmy Walker in Good Times and with Larry Hagman in Dallas. I mean, that show was originally supposed to be about Bobby Ewing, but J.R. became the star. Alex P. Keaton, as we mentioned, you know, just, just before. But to me, the greatest breakout character in television history is also my personal favorite TV character of all time. And that's, of course, Fonzie. Hey. Now, <laughs> hey. I, I got to mention, a few years ago, Henry Winkler was making an appearance at the Niagara Falls Comic-Con. And my wife made me stay home to help her organize a garage sale. A freaking garage sale, Derek. So to this day, I never let her live it down. Uh, you know, I gave up the chance to meet my idol and my personal hero, the Fonz, so we could make, what, 50 bucks, you know, selling our crap to our neighbors. I'm not bitter about it, though. No, but, of course not. But anyway, when, when Happy Days first got started, like, if you think about it, it wasn't even a sitcom. It was shot on film. It was basically a TV version of Lucas's American Graffiti. I mean, hell, it even had Ron Howard in it, right? There's no <clears throat> and, laugh track in the first season, nope. right? No, there was the odd one here and there. Very, very subtle. And the thing was, Fonzie wasn't allowed to be seen on a motorcycle. He wasn't allowed to wear a black leather jacket. In the first season, he wore a tan suede jacket. Really? Yes. It wasn't until the second season that the idiots at the studio started to understand that, you know, they had a hit on their hands and they kind of changed the format. They made it more of a sitcom. And they also realized that Fonzie was becoming this massive breakout star, right? I mean, there was a period of time when I was a kid when Fonzie was on everything. He was on lunchboxes and magazines and t-shirts. I mean, you name it, it had his face on it. And at one point, they actually talked about changing the name of the show to Fonzie's Happy Days. But Winkler was totally against this, right? Because he just saw it as an ensemble cast. And the funny thing was about the character too, his name was originally supposed to be, um, uh, it wasn't supposed to be Arthur Fonzarelli because Gary Marshall wanted to name the character Arthur Mascherelli because Gary and his sister Penny Marshall, their original last name was Mascherelli. Their dad changed it to Marshall. I think just before Penny was born. And so he wanted to call the character Arthur Mascherelli. But he had a friend, Larry Gelbert, who had this hit show over on CBS called MASH. I mean, Happy Days was on ABC, right? But so that would have made Winkler's character, his name would have been called The MASH or Mashy. So he was like, oh, I can't do that. 
we'll change it to Fonzarelli. And, you know, the Fonz was born, right? But the thing was, Fonzie was everything that a breakout character should be. I mean, he was likable, but he had a bit of an edge to him and he was cool. I mean, he could make things work just by by hitting them like the jukebox. And the thing is, like, girls wanted to be with him and, and, and guys wanted to be him. And Henry Winkler just brought so much to that character. And and just like I mentioned earlier with Rhea Perlman, with, with Carla Tortelli, how, you know, she wasn't like that in real life. Henry Winkler could not have been farther from the Fonz in real life. If you've ever seen the movie Night Shift, he just played, you've seen that? I have, not recently, but I've seen it, I saw it a few times when I was younger. Yeah. Like, like he played against type, you know? I might actually have that on my PVR now that you mention it. Oh, it's so good. Like he played this character called Chuck Lumley and he was like totally against type for him because it was this nerdy character. But he brought Fonzie to life. And, and, and the thing is, he changed pop culture forever with his performance. He is one of the most iconic television characters of all time. He wasn't the lead character. You know, the show was about the Cunningham. Not initially. No. Not initially. The show was about, you know, the Cunningham family. But Fonzie became so popular with the audience, they ended up moving him, if you remember, into the room above the Cunningham's garage. So he'd get we more screen time. There. I just assumed that no. was where... No, no, okay, I didn't no, know that. No, he didn't start there. He was just a, a secondary character. And so they they made him move into the above the garage just to give him more screen time. Right? Yeah. And the thing is, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, for any length of time, you you know just how much I love Fonzie. And I think he's the greatest TV character of all time. And my, that's my opinion. And that's why he's number one on my list. To the surprise of no one. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. no, so, that's not a bad pick, though. I mean, yeah. I think it does so tread good. on what we've already talked about, that his character grew so much so fast that he clearly became more of a lead character than a supporting character. But absolutely, for the first part of the the first seasons of that show, he was absolutely a supporting character and was and did a fantastic job. So yeah. and he just yeah. grew into that role. So, yeah. Speaking of Henry Winkler, yeah. though, I, you should check out the show Barry. I've which heard is, it's uh, good. I, uh, I, I don't know where to find Bill it. Hader. Yeah, it's uh, William uh, um, uh, Henry Winkler plays the supporting character. He won an Emmy just for the first season of the show, which uh, I think two se- it's two seasons in now. It's great. It's it's not anything like you would expect it to be. And uh, the performances are fantastic. I just so. don't know where to find it. Is it like on it's not on Netflix or something? It's, it's on HBO uh, through or something? HBO. So ah, it'd be available so on Craven. Right. So I have to, to try and get that. But anyway, so, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely want to check. I've heard good things. So that's our top five list. It's time now. To have some fun with Caveman. All right, so uh, we're talking about TV supporting characters this week. And I tell you, what's more of a supporting character than a best friend? And there's been tons of best friends over the years on TV. And most of them are sort of the supporting character to the lead actor. So I tell you what, Derek, we are going to play a little game called TV Best Friends. Nice. Okay. Best friends, best friends, it's TV's best friends, best friends. Oh, that was awesome. (laughs) New drop, bud. Nice. I I didn't have a new song this week, but I did have a new drop. So always delivering the goods, I tell you. Nice. I thought I thought you were going to use the one from South Park where they have um, the evil Eric Cartman on the, one of the early Halloween episodes where he does the songs. He's like, you guys are my best friend. That's what I thought you were going to go with that. So <laughs> No, no, nice. I did my own. So All right. Okay, so here's how the game works. It's really, really simple. I'm going to mention a TV character. All you have to do is mention the sort of the better known 
TV character that they're friends with. Okay. Okay. So Sounds simple, but those ones are always the ones that I'm the most fearful of. I've got a lot. I got 20 of them for you. Are you ready? Okay. All right, is it speed round? Do I got to go as fast as I can? Yeah, go as fast as you can. Okay. 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 Oh, whatever. Okay. I'm ready. Go. Okay. So I'm going to give you the friend. You tell me who the main character is that is, is their best friend. All right. Okay. Shaggy. Who's Shaggy? Scooby Doo. Very good. All right. Skippy. Whose friend was Skippy? Oh, uh, um, Alex B. Keaton. Very good. Erwin yes. Handelman. Nice. Yes. All right. Garth Algar. Oh, well, that's Wayne Campbell. Oh, wait, bro. Party time. Excellent. This is easy. All right. Jonas the Skipper Grumby. Uh, well, I assume the skipper is from Gilligan's Island, so that would be Gilligan. Gilligan is correct. Yes, very good. All right, so this next one has three equally important best friends, okay? And this person's best friends are Oswald, Lewis, and Kate. Who's Oswald, Lewis, and Kate's oh, friend? Oh, that was um, Drew Carey. Very good. <laughs> You're just killing it, so. All right. This is you'll probably get this one. You you like this millennial stuff, Christina Yang. Who was uh, Christina Yang? That was Grey's Anatomy. Um, uh, Meredith Grey. Wow, you just kill it. All right, let's go way back in time then to Ethel Mertz. Ethel Mertz. Who was Ethel Mertz's best friend? I don't know. Laura Ingalls. No, it was Lucy Arnaz. Sure. From the you said way back. I went way back. With little way back. Prayer. I love Lucy. <laughs> All right. Here's one. Al Borland. Who was Al oh, Borland's friend, uh, best friend? Oh, my God. I know that name. Um, you it's do. not going to come to me. I got to pass. It's Tim the Tool Man Taylor. Oh, yeah. No, yes. I wouldn't have got that. Never watched the show. All right. Rhoda Morgan Stern. That was Mary Tyler Moore. Yes. Do you know her oh, character? No, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it wasn't Mary Tyler Moore on the show. It was Mary. Oh, crap. What was her last name on the show? Nah, it's not going to come. I'll give it to you. It was Mary Richards. Mary Richards. No, you could give me all night. I wouldn't have come up with it. Right. Again, not a show I watch, just a show I'm aware of. All right. Lenny and Squiggy. Who were Lenny and Squiggy friends oh, with? Uh, Laverne and Shirley. They certainly were. Very good. All right. Boner. Who was Boner's friend? Oh, that was uh, Mike Seaver. From, uh, <laughs> what's the name of that show? With, from uh, Growing Pains. Sick. Growing Pains. Did better. I didn't Boner ask for the Stabone. show. I, did, I just asked for the character. Sylvester. Your dad's name's Sylvester Stabone? Oh, so yeah, good. who would have known? All right. Larry Dallas. The last name might throw you. Just think of Larry. Was it Cousin Larry? Was it Balky Bartokamos? No, no, think of Chest Hair Larry. No, I don't know. Oh, it was Jack Tripper. Remember Larry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that was his last name. Again, All right, we're no going, idea. We're going to go way back in time. Ed Norton. Ralph Cramden. <laughs> I'm impressed. Okay. Okay, we got another one. that This, this character has three equal best friends. Okay. And they are Charlotte York, Miranda yep. Hobson, and Samantha yep. Jones. Yeah, Carrie Bradshaw, Sex in the City. I mean, I have no idea who those people are. <laughs> but you're doing good. All right. Willona Woods. Wow. Uh, who is that Willona best friends with? probably short for like Willie or Wilma. Or no, it Will. was Willona. Willona. It's a hell of a me. No idea. That was Florida Evans from Good Times. 
Don't remember yeah, Willow. Watch- I never watched. All right, whose best friend was Cockroach? Oh, that was uh, the Cosby Show. That was uh, Theo Huxtable. <laughs> See, you're doing so well. All right, here's an easy one: Screech. Oh, that was your stupid say by the bell. What uh, What was the main guy's name? It was um, Zach. Zach something. Is it Zach? Do you need the full name of Zach? You don't need the full name here. Zach something. I don't remember. It's Zach Morris. Morris. Yes. Yeah. I might have actually got that if you give me. No. Yeah. Anyway. All right. How about, I, I'm just happy you came up with Zach. No. How about the Gooch? Whose best friend was the Gooch? Oh, that was, uh, wasn't that Arnold from Different Strokes? <laughs> It was Arnold Jackson. That's correct. Yeah. All right. How about Tom and Helen Willis? Tom and Helen. Who's be- wow. who's who's best friends with Tom and Ellen Willis? And Helen. Those sounds like old timey names. So I'm thinking it's a show from the 70s. It I was. don't know. I got to pass. Oh, it was the Jeffersons. It was George it and Weezy. Okay. Yeah, George and I, Weezy. For some reason, I, that came to mind. And I was like, oh. <laughs> all right. The last one. This is an easy one. Who's best friend? was jazz. Oh, that's a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yes, I'll give you it was Will, Will Smith. Smith. Will Smith, that's correct. Yeah. Very good. So you did really well. I did really good, yeah. There was a few that I just didn't know the show. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all good. But no, you did really, really well. A couple of them you surprised me on. A couple ones that I didn't think you'd get, you'd get. And a couple ones I thought you would get, you didn't get. So that's always yeah. the way it works. But All good, you know, all good. No, the audience seems to like it too. So, all right. So, uh, so next week, it's over to you, my friend, to nominate a film for us to review. What film would you like uh, us to go back and watch? And uh, we'll do here on the show. All right. So I know normally you pick the mm-hmm. movie and then I pick a movie and then we come back and do a top five. But as we discussed over the last few shows, we've been trying to connect our two picks by some thread right so we did tootsie and then priscilla queen of the desert and then we did two sean connery films over Mm -hmm. the last couple that's right and so we we talked off off uh, mike and we said well it's great that we're trying to do this linking but i keep having to do the heavy lifting where i have to match mine to yours so we decided to switch it okay i have now free reign to pick whatever i want and then you will pick something next week that somehow has a common thread with the movie we're going to watch. This is true. Whether it's whether it's same director, same performer, same year of release, Some same sort of theme. thematic yeah. element. Yeah. Yeah. You can pick. You've got to, you know, just try to make it a little more of a straight line so that it's easy to follow. But uh, again, I'll leave it to you. So uh, we are coming up on the 25th anniversary of this film in about a month. It was originally released in January of 1997 and uh, am I doing the math right there? Yeah, the 25 years and this is the Milos Forman film The People versus Larry Flint starring Woody Harrelson Edward Norton, Courtney Love. You had mentioned Cheers earlier with Carla Tortelli as one of your picks, so that sort of inspired me uh, to make this choice. If uh, Because of Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, yeah. of course. He was nominated for an Academy Award for this. This is a great performance. Milos Forman, the director, also nominated for Best Director. So the movie it had some serious chop. I mean, and Edward Norton's one of my all-time favorites. He's good in everything, in my opinion. He's good in everything that he's, he's in. He's an astounding this, actor. Uh, yeah. This one, this was a great film. I really like, I haven't seen it in a while, but I've seen it on numerous occasions. And, you know, at its heart, it's a movie about freedom of speech. And the way things have been going 
around the world and specifically in our neighbors to the south in the U.S., there have been a lot of discussions about various freedoms of uh, including freedom of speech, of things that people can and can't say and can and can't do and things that maybe have changed under President Trump that maybe might change again under President Biden. Uh, so I think this is a, a fairly relevant topic, despite the fact that the movie is as old as it is. And uh, it'll be interesting to go back and see how this idea of free speech was framed in a film in the mid 90s, given that it follows the life and times of Larry Flint, who was the publisher of um, Hustler magazine. And that, so it took place in the 70s, right? Uh, I want to say it was like it covered a large portion of Larry Flint's life. So it mm. sort of goes through the decades. So 70s and uh, it, 80s. Yeah. It, 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, again, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. But I remember when it was out on video when I was working at Blockbuster. It was a very popular rental. I have it on DVD and I've watched it numerous times. But I don't think I've seen it in at least 10 years or more. But I, I do remember being quite strong and having a lot of good performers in a lot of supporting roles. So let's revisit it. And now, Chris, have you seen this before? So interestingly enough, uh, we mentioned this numerous times on the podcast that I'm sort of stuck, you know, in the year 1989. Like I have not watched anything after 1989, but I will say 1997 was a year that I actually picked up quite a few films and watched. I remember watching Austin Powers the first Austin Powers movie, uh, Liar Liar came out that year. And I also uh, remember watching, um, oh, what else? the Howard Stern movie that we just mentioned. Private Parts. Excellent yeah. film. But I have not seen The People versus Larry Flint. No. So I think okay. this, and it's interesting because it takes place more in a Gen X time frame, like I say, the 70s and 80s. So this should be very interesting to for, for us to watch and for us to analyze. I, I've heard Woody Harrelson is interesting because I'm really interested to, to kind of, take a look at his performance because I just think of him as Woody, you know, from cheers. Yeah. You know, and, and, and not having a lot of acting chops, but yeah. uh, this should change your impression. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was nominated for an Oscar and I believe well deserving of it. I don't think he's necessarily made all of the, the best acting choices since then, but he has been in some movies where he's great. Some movies where he's just done it for a paycheck, some movies where he's surprisingly good. Uh, but this, this demonstrates just how, how talented he is or was. And this is clearly him at his prime. At least that that's my feeling. And we'll talk more about it next time, but I hope you enjoy it. It's a little on the long side. It runs two hours and 10 minutes. Okay. But when you do a biopic that, that covers the span of someone's life, you sort of have to make sure you hit those high points for the story to really get to where it wants to be. And uh, like I said, it is a huge cast of who's who in the supporting roles. And we can talk more about that next week. So we'll come back. We'll watch the people versus Larry Flint, uh, direct by Milos Foreman and uh, we'll see what you think about it. We will do that for next show and if you want to reach out to us you will find Derek on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM and you'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien and as I mentioned at the top popgoesyourworld.com that's our website all of our contact information is on there reach out to us and we'll connect with you until next show this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 